Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really exciting conversation ahead of us. We're going to be talking about building, scaling, I mean all of the good stuff that you like to hear. Our guest today, you know, is a very interesting path, you know, and journey that he's had, you know, from being an operator to then, you know, jumping ship to the corporate side of things and now, you know, being a CEO of a rocket ship, you know, that we're going to be talking about, you know, quite quite a bit about. Uh, but uh, but again, you know, the M&A side of things, you know, especially having him, you know, let transactions worth $7 billion, uh, I find that there's going to be a ton of insights that we can unpack there. But again, I don't want to make you all wait any longer. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Sandeep Yori. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, glad to be here. So originally born in India. But eventually, you know, you ended up coming here to the U.S. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Uh, life was great growing up. I grew up in Bombay. I grew up in a middle-class family. Uh, but the economy was closed. You know, you know, way back then, there was no internet, no connectivity. We used to see the U.S. through movies. So there was a huge fascination uh, about coming to the U.S. and, uh you know, I was very excited. So when I, I came for my master's after my undergrad, and uh, uh, boy, I was surprised because reality in the U.S. is not like they show it in the movies, you know? I thought they'd be like Western m movies with horses and uh, big cities, uh, all glitzy. It wasn't quite like that. So it was great. It was it was a great experience. So. So obviously you ended up um, landing in, in Detroit and then, you know, one thing led you to the next and you landed in Silicon Valley. Now, it was definitely a different Silicon Valley back in 88. So what was different? How have you seen also Silicon Valley develop, you know, all the way up until now? I mean, Silicon Valley was hot even then, but not for everybody. It was hot only for geeks. I was working at GM because I love cars. I, I wanted to work in an auto company. I got there. It was kind of boring, you know? Uh, it just didn't move as fast and stuff. I came to visit Silicon Valley, and I was shocked. People allowed you to work any hours. People allowed you to come in and out of the office at any hours. People allowed you to wear any, like, casual clothes. All this was foreign in the late 80s. So I'm like, I want to be here. And then... As an immigrant, I saw some founders who had become, who had started companies, which was mind blowing to me, uh, that you can come to the country, be a founder, have an accent, all that good stuff, and still start a company and be a CEO. And all everything about Silicon Valley was shocking and really refreshing. So I determined I want to come to, and it was hot because computers were the future. This is where everything was going to be. So. I guess I had a good nose that, you know, this is where the future is going to be, not in the auto industry, uh, and got excited. So came out here and, you know, everything was different in Silicon Valley vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the country. But Silicon Valley itself has changed a lot, right, over the years. So. So, so in your case, you know, it was a pretty interesting transition and sequence of events that needed to happen for you to become a founder. And it all started with consulting. 
but that was the uh, bridge that got you into starting your first company. So, so how did that happen? What, what, what would you say needed to happen? And also, what kind of framework did it give you to also be a consultant before? So I wanted to be in tech, but I was not, I, I, I mean, I'd taken programming classes and I knew about computers, but I wasn't computer science. But the business school allowed me to go into strategy consulting at a company that was focused on consulting in the tech industry. So I was there for four years, and you obviously join as a junior person. You don't know anything about the industry. But I, over the four years, you learn a lot about the industry. I did consulting at Apple uh, for their sales and marketing uh, groups. I did projects at telcos. I did projects at chip companies. I did projects at software companies, all consulting projects. So it gives you a really broad perspective on, you know, learn about the industry and the like. Unlike many other founders, I didn't come from kind of the coding background, if you may. And then I said, hey, but, you know, as a consultant, you're still on the outside. So I landed up joining a company called Silicon Graphics. And I worked there for two years. And then just like we have Gen AI, like you can't blink an eye without hearing about Gen AI, the internet was that hot then. So I'm like, I got to start a company. So started talking to, uh, so I was there, I was at Silicon Graphics for two years and, you know, learned a lot about the industry and the like, and kind of got into the industry and then got together with friends and decided to start a company. And no matter when you start a company, it's a brand new experience. So. And this, this was your first baby, Oblix. So yes. with Oblix, you know, what, what, what ended up being the business model? How were you guys making money with Oblix? So we started out, we wanted to build uh, enterprise applications based on this new technology called the web and stuff. And we, we started in one place and then we, you know, that wasn't quite working out and we pivoted and then we pivoted and eventually we landed up becoming an identity management company. So we were one of the earliest identity management companies. And, uh, you know, what today we know as like Okta and Ping ID and stuff. But this was, uh, we were one of the first identity management companies, uh, you know, doing single sign-on, doing authentication authorization. So we kind of pivoted into security. We didn't start out being security. As a Identity management company, we were selling to the enterprise. So that's where I learned to sell to large enterprises. So, uh, you know, selling to IT departments, licensed product, uh, kind of standard enterprise sales. So, And this was obviously in the 90s where the VC landscape was perhaps not as developed as, as it is today. So how was that thing? How, how were the capital raising efforts, you know, for you guys? You know, how much did you raise in total and then? What was that experience of going from one cycle to the next during that time? Yeah, it was it was kind of crazy when I think about it. You know, there were all of maybe 30 VCs in up and down in the valley. So it wasn't, you know, now there's almost an unlimited number of VCs from small to big to, you know, all kinds, all flavors and operating VCs and this and that. At that time, there was like, you know, about 20, maybe 30 VCs that mattered. And uh, I... And, and fundraising was much smaller. You know, we did a three, we had a seed round with friends and family, like half a million. And that's how we got the team together, started building product and then started meeting VCs. And, you know, I, I landed up 
getting Kleiner Perkins as the Series A, and they came in at three million, and that was considered a normal Series A uh, and a good Series A. But before getting Kleiner Perkins, I probably hit all other twenty nine and got rejections. So that is what you first learn as an entrepreneur, right? Is uh, you've got to be able to pitch, you've got to be able to sell, you've got to you'll get a lot of no's. And you got to keep going. So at times it was depressing because I got so many no's, but then I got Kleiner Perkins as an investor. They were the most prestigious investor at the time. So it was, it was an incredible experience. Like uh, I can say I've pounded pavement more than anyone. And, uh, you know, uh, you learn, uh, you learn to be resilient. You learn to not, you know, not worry about rejection, which helps you when you're selling into the enterprise. It helps you in your next startup as well, though it gets easier every time, you know? Now, for you, it was the first company in the first exit. So quite uh, an amazing outcome too. You guys ended up uh, getting acquired by uh, Oracle. So how was that How was that experience like to of um, now being able to have full visibility into what is the full cycle of going through the journey of building, scaling, financing, and exiting a business, but then also make us insiders. How was it like to go through that acquisition process? Yeah, so uh, I had uh, stepped off the company uh, by the time uh, Oblix got acquired by Oracle, uh, but we were before being a year or so before being acquired by Oracle, we were looking at going public. So I worked on the whole IPO. That was an interesting experience and stuff. Uh, and then some of the other companies that I was involved in, I was involved in a comparison shopping company called eBoodle that was acquired uh, by a company called BizRate, then, which then became Shopzilla. Uh, I was involved in many of those companies. And, you know, being acquired, especially the first time you get into these deals, you have no idea, you know, how to talk. Just like when you're fundraising, you have no idea how to pitch to a VC, how to like how to take the cues, their feedback. It's the same thing from a deal process. It's a very different thing where you have companies, you have corporate people approaching you. How should you nurture them? How should you start talking about it? It's not a one-day process. So it was. It's a great learning experience. What? After all of this, I went to HP, and I actually did M&A on the buy side. And, uh, you know, you, you realize, uh, it, so it's a, it, I had an experience kind of doing it completely on the other side of things, which was interesting. Uh, so, yeah, it's a very, very different perspective, and having it on both sides, you know, learning to work with corporate, you know, large corporations and getting their interest uh, is is a bit of an art. It doesn't just happen randomly. So, because at, at HP you led fourteen deals with, uh, I think it was a, an aggregate amount of seven billion. Is that right? Yes, yes. That that gives you that gives you that 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 perspective that 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 insight into what happens on the sell side, what happens on the buy side, especially now at HP. I guess especially for the founders that are listening. What would you say are the biggest things that you learned, you know, from that experience, especially being on the buy side, that if you were to now be on the sell side now, you would absolutely implement and you would be on the lookout for? Yeah. So, you know, uh, one of the things is that it, it, 
the, the transaction doesn't happen like someone calls you and says, hey, I, I want to buy you. That's not how it happens. You have to build. Uh, first of all, you have to have a good brand in the market. So people are aware of you. You should know who could be potential acquirers. Even if you're not in, if you're not ready to sell, you should always be aware of the market and who should, who could be the potential uh, acquirers. Why? Because who would your technology, your company be of interest to? So that's one thing as a founder from the very beginning, you should always be cognizant of. Number two, even if you're not ready to sell, you, you, you know, you should be doing this is figure out who these are. Make sure that you have good awareness in the market so they are aware of you, right? So creating that buzz or at least uh, making sure that they are aware of you. Number three, I would say try to uh, make sure that your products integrate with them and you have customers where the two companies together make sense, you know, to a customer. At the end of the day, a company buys somebody because their customers find it valuable. So instead of hitting the company directly, work with customers where the two products are interacting and there is synergy you can show at the customer level. If you do that, guess what? The, the acquirer, the potential acquirer discovers it talks to because they're talking to their customers when they hear their customers telling them that this is a valuable company or a valuable technology or here's how this small company let's assume it's small this small company really enhances my uh my offering the bigger company's offering that's when the interest are, uh comes up so as founders you 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 have to think about why would your product, company, technology, whatever, be of interest to the acquirer. Don't think about kind of your perspective. Put yourself in their shoes. Why should they find you interesting? How does it help their business, right? You might have a billion-dollar company uh, as a potential acquirer. You could be a $5 million company. You know, a $5 million business is not going to move the needle for a billion dollar company. So don't tell them I'm going to grow a hundred percent. So it's awesome. They're like, Hey, I'm a billion dollar company going from five to 10 is not that big a deal. I do that in like a month. You know, what you need to think about is why will this $5 million company help that billion dollar become much bigger? How does it help them retain customers? How does it help them expand their customer base and the like. So put yourself in their shoes and think about it. And that's how you make them interested in what you have to offer. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I gotta tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So 
that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. In talking about expanding 100%, and, and, and as you're talking about expansion there, I think about scaling up. And when thinking about scaling up, uh, after HP, you joined uh, a company, a CEO out of, the, uh, out of, out of uh, uh, Europe uh, in, in, in Austria called Transcendis. And in this company, when you joined, they were about $5 million in annual recurring revenue. And you were literally there uh, when you joined from $5 million, it went all the way up to $300 million plus in ARR. So as we're thinking about that impact, as we're thinking about expansion, like you were saying, and scaling, what were some of the things you know, that, 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 that you looked out for or that you were keeping in mind or that you learned from going from that validation stage, which is that $5 million, to then growth you know, scale stage going to 300 million plus. Yeah, so, uh, you know, maybe I'll back up and say, when I was at Oblix, we were started from zero, you know, and what you do and how you behave and how you operate is very different when you go from zero to, let's say, 10. And then you have to redefine everything you do when you go from 10 to 50. And then at 50 or something like that, again, you have to redefine the company. So you have to re rethink your mode of operation, your how you manage people, how you uh, work on different functions. Everything has to be redefined. And sometimes people have to be replaced at each of these stages because not everyone is appropriate for each of these stages. Some people evolve, some don't. When I went to HP, they were like 3,000 people, completely different. I had to restart and rewire myself on how to operate at scale. So it's, it's a very different kind of experience. Then I went back to Tricentis, which was, again, a smaller company. So I had to kind of remind myself what size we are, how to make impact today so that we have the next six months, you know, in the beginning as a small company, you have to focus on very tactical things to make sure that you survive and you can get to the next phase, right? When you're at 5 million, you need to think about how you'll get to 300, but your prime objective should be to go from five to 10. And how can I do that so that I then have the license to go from 10 to 50? Right. So so it, it's one of those things which you have to keep the long term in mind, but get very tactical on making sure that you can be efficient and effective in getting to the next level. I always think about what is the next tier? What is the next uh, 
uh, quantum level I need to get to, right? So think big, but operate very, uh, very tactically at, okay, I'm at 1 million now, I need to get to 5 million, right? Just focus in on that. And then also as you are uh, thinking about this too and, and growth and scale, how do you change that mindset from being like in this case it was a European company to really transforming it into a global company? Yeah, so uh, it was a European company, not only European, it was selling primarily only in the German-speaking areas, so Austria, uh, Austria Germany, and Switzerland. Uh, so, you know, when I came in there, there was a lot of cultural change that we had to, we had to go through. We had to, one, set an ambition to become a global company and become a global leader. And I started kind of, you know, imbibing that, imbibing that into everybody's kind of setting a strategy of what is our long-term strategy. Our long-term strategy is to be a global leader. We don't want to be just a dark region leader. To be a global leader, who are the competitors? You start looking at different competitors. You start looking at different markets. One of the first things we had to do was make sure that we have a legit, uh, uh, critical mass of business in the U.S. You know, most software companies, especially for the enterprise, unless you crack the U.S., you're not a legitimate company. So one of the first tasks was to make sure that we have a presence in the U.S., we have customers in the U.S., we talk to analysts and industry experts in the U.S. So setting up the U.S. entity was one of the First, and usually for a company that is not founded in the U.S., one of the biggest challenges. But changing the culture is a gradual process. I did everything from uh, holding, uh, you know, defining the strategy, uh, holding all hands, doing one-on-ones with small teams to, to get them to change to more of a Silicon Valley type behavior. I had my team from there, some key people come here to Silicon Valley, I actually had them visit a number of people, a number of companies. I remember go, taking them to Google, taking them to Twitter, saying, hey, look at the environment, look at how people operate here. So it's a gradual process, but it's something that you have to drive kind of culturally. So so the next step, you know, in or your next chapter, you know, is check marks. You know, check marks. Uh, basically, a company that was founded that ended up getting a, you know, a big majority stake by a, a private equity. Uh, and in this case, you're recruited, you know, to really lead the operation. So I guess for the people that are listening, what's the business model of Checkmarks? What what, what do you guys do? How do you guys make money? Checkmarks is a uh, what's known as application security company. We if you think of any software at an enterprise or at a tech company, any any application that is written, we check we check the application for security challenges. So uh, it, there's a number of different checks we do, but basically check for security before you put things into production. That's what we do. We are we were a VC funded company. The two founders started the company in Israel in Tel Aviv uh, about 15 years ago, uh, and raised local VC money, then came to the U.S. and raised money with Insight Capital, which is a large PE firm based out of New York. They were doing about $10 million in ARR at that point, and Insight 
invested as a as a as a major uh, majority shareholder at that point. And over the next uh, what's it for five years, they grew from ten million to about a hundred million in ARR. And uh, at that point, Insight sold, and a new PE firm bought in. Uh, the the current majority owner is Hellman Friedman, uh, which is a PE firm based out of San Francisco. I've been in business for twenty plus years. Insight is a minority shareholder. TPG is a minority shareholder, and H and F is the majority shareholder. The founders were looking to transition, uh, and the founding. CEO was looking to transition. So Hellman Friedman asked me or, you know, was went out recruiting, found me and, uh, and, you know, decided to hire me as CEO. So I joined about a year ago. So now leading the operation here for, for Checkmarks now, if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision for Checkmarks is fully realized, what does that world look like? The, uh, our vision is to be the leader in AppSec. Today, there's m many companies in AppSec. We are one of the bigger companies, one of the recognized as one of the leaders. I want to be the clear leader. So be the largest in the AppSec sector, right? Have the most comprehensive solution. That's what our, our mission is, to drive to leadership. Every, every company I've been in always focused on driving to leadership in the category as you define it. Tricentis is a leader in the testing space. Checkmarks is one of many companies in the application security space. I want to be recognized as uh, a very clear leader. You know, when you think of CRM, you think of Salesforce. The same way, when people think of AppSec, I want our name to be the first one that comes to their mind. Uh, you know, as a security company, I want to, you know, our vision is to allow all software applications to be secure, you know, and the world runs on applications and our job is to make sure that there are no embarrassing security flaws. It costs a lot of money. It hurts the com It hurts companies. It costs a lot of money. There's all kinds of bad things that happen when your applications are not well secured. So, 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 I mean, in your, in, in your extensive career and, and, and you've been on different side of, different sides of the table, you've seen leadership in all shapes and forms. So what does it look like when leadership, you know, in, in, at its best, what does leadership at its best, what does that look like? So first of all, I've, you're right. I've seen leadership of all different kinds, and there are different styles and different leaders that, succeed with very dramatically different styles, right? So there's not like one model that works. It's all about, you know, different leaders have different styles and many different styles can be effective. So there's not, in my mind, there isn't one, one formula. Having said that, your question is about what does good leadership look like? Good leadership looks like, you know, when, when you can inspire your people and they and drive that motivation in them uh, and pride and inspiration. That's when people do impossible things. So one of my managers said, a good leader, uh, you know, takes amazing people and lets them loose to let them reach their full potential, and takes kind of 
people that are, you know, basically gets people to operate at a higher potential than they've ever operated. And inspiring people to a bigger goal, inspiring them and motivating is the most rewarding, but also the most important thing of leadership. You can figure out strategy and whether to go this way or whether to pivot and whether you'll have a billion dollar exit or a $3 billion exit. All those are things that all happen because of circumstances and luck and environment and stuff. But people remember high functioning teams and high functioning teams have a mission and a, uh, and a mission and a, a, a strive for excellence, you know, uh, and, and people are usually inspired. They're motivated to go succeed. So, so let's say I was to put you into a time machine now, Sandeep, and I take you back in time. You know, I take you back in time to perhaps, you know, that moment in, I would say, you know, about 96, you know, right around 96 where, you are thinking at Silicon Graphics, hey, maybe, you know, I, I do something, you know, of my own. Maybe I take control of my own destiny. Now, let's say, you know, uh, you're right there. You know, it's in June 1996, you know, right around the time where you were thinking about giving your notice. And let's say you just give your notice and you're coming out of the building and you're thinking, oh, wow, you know, let's see what the future holds. And Let's say you're able to stop that younger, that younger self, that younger Sandeep, and give one piece of advice to your younger self. And that would be one piece of advice about launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? That's a great question. Uh, I've thought about that. You know, and, and hey, I, I swing on two and spectrums of it. When I look back, I find it amazing that we survived and succeeded given the lack of experience. So on the one side, I would say my advice to the younger self would be, be patient, get some more experience, learn a little more, learn, you know, learn the business a little more, learn uh, the industry a little more before you get started. That's on one side, right? Because it was tough. Everything was new. You're doing it for the age. And then on the other side, I think about it, no matter when you do, no matter when you start a company, it is nothing like working at another company when you start the company as the founder. So I go between both ends of that. But if I were to redo, I mean, it turned out well, uh, but it was a lot easier a second and third time because I think I had more experience. So you have to go through the experience. You can do it at another company or you can dive in like I did, started the company. Thank God we survived and succeeded with the first shot. But even if we hadn't, we would have learned a lot. So, you know, uh, I, would, I would tell myself to be a little patient. But, you know, entrepreneurs are not patient. So if I was too patient, I would have never been an entrepreneur. So it's a bit ironical, right? Uh, I would advise an entrepreneur to be patient, but if patient people don't become entrepreneurs, you know, so. I hear you. I hear you. I hear you you got to balance that. But that's very yeah. profound. So for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, LinkedIn, uh, you know, just search for me uh, or Twitter. I have a Twitter. I'm not super active, but uh, you can DM me there or uh, send me an email. 
uh, you know, my email is in my LinkedIn, uh, uh, in my LinkedIn profile, uh, my personal email. So uh, happy to happy to take. Uh, I, I work with entrepreneurs. I love helping entrepreneurs where I can. Uh, so happy to do that. Amazing. Well, Sandeep, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Well, thanks for the privilege. This is great. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.